Welcome to It Means What It Means, the podcast in which a guy with some college and a day job asks experts questions about biblical studies. So today I'm in my hotel room in San Antonio. I have wrapped up the AAR SBL annual meeting as far as my participation in it goes. I was just going to give a rundown of the sessions that I went to and what my experience was like. So I guess I'll do the experience part first. As far as expectations go for this, I did not know what to expect. Having never been to an academic conference before. So my approach was to not place too much pressure on myself. I didn't want to come here to invite a whole bunch of people onto the podcast and feel a lot of pressure to meet people since there was already a little bit of mystery for me as to what the experience was going to be. I also didn't want to set a schedule too tight, even though I think for a couple of weeks we've had the app and we were like those of us who signed up for the conference were able to go through and look at what was going to be on the schedule and plan ahead. And I'm glad that I kept that loose because I found out on Saturday, the first day that there were things I was going to exactly what the context is. So when you have these sessions, it's several people presenting papers, but it's all under this one heading under a block. And, and I'll get into some of that more later. I didn't know that. I just saw so-and-so is giving this paper. I want to go see it. And it realized that I would be walking in and interrupting a room. I don't like showing up late for things. It feels off for me. So I learned pretty quickly if I want to be somewhere, be there at the beginning of that session, even if I'm not as interested in those papers, it just suits my personality to be somewhere before I need to be there. And then I didn't feel that bad about getting up and leaving after I had heard the paper I wanted to hear. So the first session that I went to, I went to hear Heather McCumber present her paper, Slipping Through Time and Space in Hawkins and Patmos. And she's drawing comparisons between the apocalyptic text of Revelation and the Netflix series, Stranger Things. And there were some pretty interesting things there about liminality and just different boundaries being pierced, a, a duality of the world. Heather did a really good job there. I'm going from memory because another thing I learned about myself, I, I'm not pulling my notes out for any of these. I just made an outline of what I knew I went to based on the schedule. One of the things I found is the way that I'm used to taking notes doesn't really work. I hear where people give an outline and hit their high notes and I'll write that down, but I needed space to write comments. So I held back, but a lot of the, a lot of the people that I saw, I didn't really get a chance to catch some of those bullet points that I had missed. So I just tried to pay attention. The, the next thing I went to. There were, again, so there were multiple papers there with Heather McCumber, but she's the one that I was really focusing on. 
The next session that I went to, the paper that really stood out to me was by David A. Burnett. It was called Star Differs from Star. 1 Corinthians 15, 41, Celestial Hierarchicalism in Paul's Resurrection Mythos. I don't really want to go into a ton of detail about this because I would really like to try to get David on here. Had a had an interesting conversation with him. He talks a little bit about the subject matter on the Data Over Dogma podcast, as far as the substance of stars and what Paul is saying. And I know that there's a book chapter that he also mentions in the Data Over Dogma podcast. So I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. He is a very interesting thinker and a powerful speaker. I even asked him at a session later today, actually today's Monday, actually asked him in a session where he was sitting in front of me, did you do speech and debate? Because you, you're very good. And it seems like you have done this for a while, much to my sadness. It does not sound like he was a speech and debate nerd in the way that I was in high school. After that, so I went to that one Sunday morning. Later that day, I went to Acts and Whiteness. But actually, Saturday night after Heather McCumber, I went to Paul Within Judaism, which is, that was a session, a panel that I need a little bit more time to digest. I think that may come up later. There was a lot to it. I didn't want to completely omit it, but I'm not going into detail. I know no one would know, but integrity dictates that I tell the truth. Heather McCumber and then Paul within Judaism and then Sunday morning, Sunday the 19th, I went to the session that David Burnett was a part of. And then Sunday uh, afternoon, evening was Acts and Whiteness. I'll go through the list of names for the, the panelists on that. So there was Greg Carey, Jung Choi, Ekaputra Tupamahu, Eric Barreto, Denise K. Buell, Jin Young Choi, and Jeremy Williams. I thought that was a really interesting panel. I don't know that I can go into a ton of detail about what any one person said. They all brought points of view in discussing acts and whiteness. And really what they were saying was in evaluating the book of acts, it's important for us to remove, I think maybe the interpretive overlay, that's my way of wording it, not theirs, an interpretive overlay that, that speaks of several centuries, at least of white interpreters. And I'm sure that there are a lot of people who are going to hear me say that and think, why do you have to bring race into it at all? And what I think the first really captivating thing, there's a lot of interesting things said, but the first really captivating thing in there was Ekaputra Tupamahu brought up the fact that Nowhere in the book of Acts is the word missionary used. I guess that's technically not true because the headings of different sections are like Paul's first missionary journey, but, but the, the, the text itself does not discuss missionary 
activity. And they relate missionary activity, several of the panelists, to colonialism and the idea that I think it was Jeremy Williams who mentioned the word missionary was not associated even in those section headings until the early 1700s. And that was as a result of the formation of a society for, I think, the advancement of Christian ideas or something in the 1690s. That may be a long time ago for us on the ground, but that was an even longer time from the foundation of Christianity. So the idea that something that seems so important and so fundamental to Christianity as, as missionary activity to be associated with colonial identity was a very helpful framework in how that's thought of. But the panel ended with Jeremy Williams from Texas Christian University as the respondent and framing his response with, at least in part, with his book about criminalization in Acts of the Apostles, race, rhetoric, and the prosecution of an early Christian movement. And he made a point of mentioning that he uses prosecution as the language in the book to talk about how these early Christians were going after. He is someone, this is another reason I'm not digging through my notes so that I don't misunderstand it. Jeremy Williams is someone I definitely want to have on the podcast. And then, so Monday morning, today, the first place I went was the intertextuality in the New Testament, Pauline Epistles. And I went there because Chris Tilling, friend of the podcast, said, hey, you should come see this. We're talking about Jason Staples' book, Paul and the Resurrection of Israel. So look, Chris Tilling tells me to go somewhere, actually, if any of my guests tell me to go somewhere. Actually, if I'm backing up for a minute, the Acts and Whiteness was recommended to me by Angela Parker, who has not been on the podcast yet, but she and I had corresponded before this and I was waiting in line to get coffee and she just happened to be behind me and we were chatting and she said, I really think that this would be, this would be good this acts and whiteness and I loved it knocked it out of the park. Chris Tilling said, yeah, no, I'm going to be given a paper he was one of several Joshua Garraway, Julie Newberry, Kathy Ehrensberger, Chris Tilling and Jason Staples. So Jason Staples was responding to all of them and they were all addressing his book and raising some issues. It's a very dense subject, but the core, it seems of what Staples' book, Paul and the Resurrection of Israel, is saying, is that Paul in Romans is communicating the idea that the 10 lost tribes have gone into the diaspora, they've gone into the world, 
and have become, I suppose, Gentiles. So I'm using very rough language. This is hundreds of pages, so much ink that he has spilled to explain these ideas. I, I know that I'm not doing them justice. Chris Tilling did a wonderful job of raising issues, but the conversation got cut short because they all did a wonderful job of raising issues with his central thesis. Chris, I will say though, was essentially saying, and I remember the, I, I had stopped making notes by the time Chris went, cause Chris went fourth of five and I was really engaged and he, Chris is a tough person to take notes on because he's a wonderful writer and a wonderful communicator. I think he's an absolutely just a beautiful person to talk to. He's. He is a gentle and compassionate communicator. What Chris was saying in line with what he said on this podcast is that Paul in for sure Romans one through three, as they apply to this book, that Paul is not speaking here, that this is Paul speaking on behalf of his interlocutor. Staples does not think that. <laughs> When, when that part was brought up, Chris said, and I think Jason has misunderstood Douglas Campbell's work and Jason Staples stopped typing on his laptop, stopped taking notes and he shouted, there it is, because he was waiting for Chris to reference Campbell or his misunderstanding of Campbell, but. Chris was saying, Paul's not speaking on his own behalf here. Paul is talking about another set of ideas that he is going to spend, I think from chapter five on in Romans, knocking down the ideas that he's setting up here in the early part of the book. It's, that's still a debated and controversial thesis. Maybe we'll get Doug Campbell on here at some point to discuss that. Hope if not, that's fine. So that was this morning, later in the day. A friend of mine and I had decided we were going to go to a friend he had introduced me to was giving a paper on curses in Hebrew poetry. And one of the papers that I heard in that session, it was, it, it blew me away. I was really excited listening to it. And I looked at my friend next to me and he was really excited too. And he is a Hebrew scholar. I am not. So I thought. He's, if he is as excited as I am, th this is a good sign. This means I'm actually picking up on something. So that, that paper was Ryan C. Chester. It's the title is cursed between blessing, textual criticism, the problem of transliteration and the curse of Psalm 8940. And that man, that paper essentially the paper was basically a deep dive demonstrating how a mistaken transliteration based off of a Latin translation could lead to years of incorrect interpretation. Not being a technical specialist, I don't feel comfortable going into that, but I will reach out to him and do my best to have him on the podcast. And then the last thing that I went to today was, as I said, if one of my guests 
recommends something, recommends a session to me and make an effort to get there. And so Heather McCumber recommended book history and biblical literatures, and they were discussing Seconding Sinai, which is a book by Professor Hindi Nyman. So it's, this is the 20th anniversary of her first book. And Hindi was Heather McCumber's doctoral advisor, I believe. So when I asked her, what should I go see? She said, you need to go see Hindi Nyman. This is going to be really good. And it was excellent. After the session, I went up to her to say one of the, actually the main project that I feel like this podcast is starting to take on is communicating the idea in many different ways that the bound volume on your shelf is not as simple as being just that bound volume. That bound volume is in fact, the result of a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of knowledge and wisdom and understanding. So again, without going into someone's work that I don't understand, because that's not what I do. I ask people questions. What they were discussing in that session was what I, what I, what I think I best understand as negotiating with texts and developing historical understanding of texts. And that's, man, that's such a heavy project that they have. It's such a difficult task or set of tasks that they have that the scholars doing that work have in front of them because it takes the acknowledgement that you're reading from your point of view and you are trying to get a better idea of what someone else or several other people who constructed this text at one point in time or over a long period of time. It could be a text that has something else inserted inside of it's just, yes, there were five people sitting, uh, sitting up there at the front of the room, explaining to the rest of us how this process works. And one of the things I noticed, and I thought about this, I didn't ask, I, I made the decision. Uh, I don't, and I reserve the right to not stick to this if I decide not to, but I think this is a pretty good policy. When I go to these sessions, I don't feel like I need to ask questions. I have a podcast. I don't think I need to stand up in a room. This is, and I understand I am a member. I've joined, I pay my dues. I, I paid for my, my ability to go to this conference. So it's not that I don't feel like I have a right to be there, but I think it's, I have a platform to ask these people questions. If, and when they come on my podcast, I get to ask them questions. And so I didn't ask things. I didn't make comments. One of the things I was thinking in this last session is some of the younger people, which is more and more people that I notice in the world, but some of the younger people asking questions, I wondered if there wasn't a culture in academia as you advance on that obviously the academy is school in one sense, but school in the sense of I like to tell my son when I ask him a question and he looks stressed out 
and doesn't answer, I like to tell him, this isn't school. I don't know is an acceptable answer. And there is a culture in schools where if you are, if you're cooperative, if you're agreeable, and if you want to be successful, you will have an answer that you will be ready, that you will make sure things. And I think that speaks to most of the time that most people spend in education. But that's really the skills building part of education. And it seems that as people move, I don't know, into or past the graduate level, that they're not really meant to just know things, that all the skills they've developed maybe through their undergraduate period and beginning their graduate period, that now they're supposed to be able to direct their thinking. And that really is almost a separate learning process because these more experienced scholars in talking about how do you date a text? How do you understand when and where and by whom and what the important aspects of it as philologists, that's the point of view that they're speaking from, that they develop a critical approach to the subjects that they interact with, the texts that they're trying to develop an understanding of. And that's a different set of skills than basically everything up through your undergraduate education, where you have to learn things and your ability to format things properly as picked up and all of that stuff is done at a certain point and you have to, you have to think for yourself and it really is yeah, someone in there asked about philology and chronology. And I know for most people that probably who cares, like those are just words, but I could tell that this young man had some anxiety and I don't know what point he is in his career. He, he could be older than he looked, but he looked pretty young as he might be graduate student or something. And I, I wondered if what he was struggling with was the idea that when you look at something at first and you don't know, and you have to wrestle with it. And I think I'm, I'm discovering more and more with the people that I talk to, a lot of their work is accepting that they don't know something and that maybe the pathway that they were taking or the methodology that they were using or the thinking they were approaching it with just don't work. And they have to find a new angle of entry to get a better idea, to learn, to be able to say they know things. And there's almost this Zen-like quality to the idea that maybe I'll, maybe I won't know. Maybe I'm the person who will do a ton of work that somebody in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years comes along and finds my work and they put it all together in a way that makes sense. And that's risky. And that's risky in a way that we don't have people in K through 12 or undergraduate studies. That's not a level of risk that people take. The glory that you earn at that 
earliest phase of education is about demonstrating competence as it applies to established information. You're not doing anything novel. You're not breaking new ground. You're earning credentials that will then let you go on and do these other things. And it's, I think another thing that occurred to me was, so there was, I think the name was Bentley, but there was a philologist from the, the 18th century who was mentioned, not mentioned, but who was analyzed. His work was being analyzed by one of the presenters who was, who Hindi Nyman was responding to. And it, it, so there was this idea from this 18th century philologist that he could just, basically he was just making things up. Like he was, some of the documents that he was addressing, he was like fixing things because he thought they had been corrupted and he would, you know, accuse people of this is a forgery. This is much later. And he, he had this very self-assured approach to these texts. And that, that made me think about the world that we live in now, where science has given us technology and methods and information that are very certain. When I, after I left this session, I pulled out my phone and I looked around for restaurants and I found the one I wanted to go to and I turned on the directions and the podcast I was listening to was interrupted periodically with directions for me to walk to the restaurant. And that, that was precise in a way that's when you stop and think about it, pretty astounding. And it took a lot of work for people to get there, but that work is done. Granted, we still have satellites up there and networks need to be maintained. Infrastructure needs to be maintained and repaired sometimes, but that work has been done. And a lot of that work came from the certainty of this 18th century mentality. And that 18th century mentality is what has brought us a lot of in classics and biblical studies and geography and archaeology. It's brought us the methodologies and the desire to refine and improve and continue to learn and understand. But it also brought us the arrogance and bringing it back around to acts and whiteness, that certainty, the certitude was predicated on the idea that in much the same way that we can know things, we are people of a status and a stature and a cultural development that we can say we are going to be missionaries, that we are going to be the ones to go and deliver all of this in addition to what we think theologically and religiously are the apex of human achievement and that those things are associated with cultural ideas. And there's so much work being put into understanding these texts, biblical texts. And the best way to do that is to get as many points of view as you can to get as many voices in the room. And the only way to do that is to stop assuming, or rather maybe not the only way, the best way to do that is to stop assuming 
that there's any such thing as a baseline. You have to keep attempting and attempting. And I think what I'll call an elementary point of view on this kind of thing makes it really difficult for someone to understand that. It's really easy to bristle at that idea because we have this idea around us that if there is truth, it must be objective and it must be knowable in the way that these other things we got from that same time period, the scientific revolution or whatever you want to call it, these ideas all developed over time and they were handed down to us. And so they must be good for something. The problem is they're very limited. They offer a narrow aperture, a narrower aperture than we deserve or certainly than we need if we're going to understand, because this isn't really look, whether if you're a believer or a, a practitioner of some faith or religious tradition, engaging with whether it's Hebrew Bible, apocryphal text, new Testament, doesn't matter. If you're engaging with biblical texts, you have some expectation that you are also engaging in truth. And so to do that in a good faith way means that you are removing transparencies or overlays or however you want to think about it from between you and the text. And that is the negotiation or that is the process. So you continually do that. And this was a, this was an interesting experience for me. It reminded me for sure that I'm not a fan of meeting new people, or at least not just meeting new people cold. I don't mind being introduced to people or people watching. I enjoy actually, that's another thing. I went to some receptions, which was a, a very new thing for me and they are loud and they are also interesting. I mostly just stood and watched people just to see how people interact with these things. And it really just validated to me that people are people and nobody's really that special. Actually walking into the conference this morning, it clicked why it felt so familiar to be at this conference. Uh, I saw a young lady going over her paper or I, what looked like she was going over her paper. And it reminded me of being at a, a speech and debate tournament where someone would be preparing their piece for humorous interpretation or dramatic interpretation or something. And I thought about that and I was like, these really are the debaters of the adult world. In many instances, they are going into a room to argue with other people to try and come out on top. They are high performers. They're smart. It's, it's a debate tournament, just higher age level. Yeah. I, I enjoy this experience in the future. I will probably be soliciting more recommendations from guests and I probably will know what I intend to do and where I intend to be. I don't think I will need to wander around the exhibit hall as much. I wandered around just looking at books. 
honestly, honestly looking for faces that I knew too. I think now that I know how sessions work because I've been to them, I will just be probably spending more time in sessions going forward and enjoying that experience. But I got to meet Chris Tilling and Alexiana Fry, Heather McCumber, Andy Nyman. I got to meet her as well. And oh, David Burnett, he and I spoke. I met Kathy Ehrensberger and her husband, William Campbell, and we spoke for a while. I was not familiar with either of their work before I met them, but they were a pleasure to talk to after the Jason Staples panel or session. It's, this was a really good experience, and my intention is to go to San Diego next year. So I'm looking forward to that. And so uh, I've been adding a canned conclusion here. Uh, I won't do that this time because I could just wrap this all up. This will probably be roughly 30 minutes once I edit out all of the dead air from me trying to think about what I was going to say. But uh, I will have the link tree available in the show notes. But also keep in mind, I have the Patreon. So for $5 a month, you can hear every episode as soon as they're edited. For the foreseeable future, that's not going to change. So this episode should be out Monday night, technically Tuesday morning, 21 November 2023. And then the next episode will be out on Thursday, Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving. But that'll be Daniel Rodriguez, one of my best friends for quite a long time. And he, his episode comes out on Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. And so I wanted him to have a special place. Yeah, I guess that's it. My first SBL annual meeting over and done with. Thank you so much for listening. 